this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindu's in focus podcast today we have a special episode to introduce you to the hindu's on books podcast which features detailed conversations with authors on their latest books creative ideas and more In this bonus episode from the On Books podcast, we have Vagis K. George, senior editor at The Hindu, in conversation with author Shruti Kapila on her book Violent Fraternity: Indian Political Thought in the Global Age. You can subscribe to The Hindu On Books from the links in the show notes. Indian Political Thought in the Global Age. The book deals with questions of fraternity, violence and sovereignty and how they interact in thought and action in the making of the Indian Republic and Pakistan. The core argument or at least one of the core arguments is that violence is not been as distant from India's politics as we have often been told. In fact, violence was integral to the founding of the republic. Uh, thank you Shruti for joining us and uh, I wanted to start by asking you whether I have characterized the argument of the book more or less accurately. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great a privilege and a pleasure to be in conversation with you and for the Hindu uh, this morning. And you're absolutely right. Uh, the summary that you've given is apt and correct. The book charts uh, the story of India's founding figures from, say, 1900 to 1950. and how violence was central to the making of both the indian republic but also pakistan right okay so let us uh, uh, sort of uh, touch upon a very latest controversy that is regarding the new iteration of uh, india's national emblem the lion capital of ashoka so we have a new version of it uh, to be erected on top of the new parliament house that is being built the critics of the bjp can see a very violent aggressive version uh, of of those ashoka lions uh, some have said it is merely an enlargement of the original expression facial expression of those lions but some uh, supporters of the government have said that in fact this actually the the aggression that if you have seen on the new face of the lion it actually is a emblem of the new india in your book you say that uh, ashoka and the ashoka emblems were indeed the emblems of a nehruvian india but that ashoka the emperor ashoka himself was seen as by implication an enemy of the nation by the hindutva interpretation of uh, community or sovereignty including savarkar so what does this say about uh, the, the the our current and uh, how this thought uh, had evolved during the uh, national movement Well thank you that's a great first uh, question uh, to on the question of the new emblem and so in one sense it's entirely unsurprising that the key indian symbols and even the key even you could say settlements uh, from 1950 whether it's the constitution or, or whether it is the symbols of it are undergoing a major revision under hindut hindutva so i don't see this as exceptional from what is going on now for the last 8 to 10 years it's part of the same story having said that i don't think it is about whether this is more closer to the original truth or as they were in sarnath or or not first 
immediate point is that Nehru deliberately uses the Ashoka symbols, partly because in some ways it also speaks to the founding of the Republic after a major civil war of partition. So in that sense, Ashoka is in a way the spirit, the Buddhist spirit that in a way Nehru wants to uh, remind the Indian nation after, as it were, the violence of partition. But the other point is the more serious or the more deeper point, which is there actually in the writings of Savarkar. So Savarkar is the founder of Hindutva. He is really the person who gives meaning to this new word. And he says, well, he's fashioning a new political way of thinking about India and Hindus and Hinduness. And that word is Hindutva. So both in his manifesto, which is published in 1923, uh, right after you know he comes out of, as it were, the Andamans, and the, as well as in his last book, which is Six Glorious Epochs, which is published in 64, which is two years after Nehru's death, he is very clear about uh, Ashoka, as uh, the Emperor Ashoka, as the key figure who makes India vulnerable to so-called foreign invasions uh, thereafter. And it's it's interesting because Six Glorious Epochs is organized around, as the title says, six major wars that really give India its identity and give Hindutva its kind of you know, force. And Ashoka is singled out as the as a, as, as, a, as the emperor who militates or who disallows uh, dis the formation of, of nationality in the modern sense in India, precisely because of his commitment to nonviolence. Uh, after he, you know, after he renounces uh, violence after Kalinga, and I think it's 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 this kind of tension. So we are, of course, accustomed, and it is also true that Hindutva is fashioned around uh, a kind of strong um, sentiment against uh, Islam and Muslims. But we forget that actually the original internal enemy for Savarkar is Buddhism. Okay, so at that, that, that point, I think I, I will segue into this idea of Hindutva, uh, the Pidru Bhumi, Punya Bhumi concept of Savarkar, which is often interpreted by uh, people who are critics of uh, uh, Hindutva, that actually it includes uh, Buddhism. Uh, because it is the Punibhumi and uh, yeah, the, the birthplace and both are in what is geographically today's India. So how does that uh, uh, the Pudrabhumi, Punibhumi concept sit with uh, this hostility towards uh, Buddhism and non-violence that is very integral to not only Savarkar, as you just mentioned, even for Tilak, right? Tilak, but also Ambedkar will be the opposite for Ambedkar. So in a way, Buddhism is, is, is interesting. We never really talk about it much, but it is there in all our founding figures from Tilak to Ambedkar from, and, and particularly Savarkar. For, uh, for Ambedkar, of course, Buddhism points to a more egalitarian future of India. And I will come to him in a second. But your question is, 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 is interesting or, uh, in two ways that why is it then, you know, therefore there's a kind of appropriation today by, say, the current government to produce, a, to give a kind of more militant, aggressive look to Buddhism, which also is true, you know, it is it is not it is also false to claim that Buddhism is only uh, nonviolent because you just have to look at the history of Sri Lanka and Thailand to see a kind of militant Hindu uh, Buddhism 
in place. But that was not the, the intention of Nehru or the others. And the question that you pose about Pitrabhumi and Punyabhumi, which is to say that Savarkar has this theory of Indian territoriality and Indian geography and Indian nationality based on this distinction between Pitrabhumi or the land of the fatherlands or the ancestors and Punyabhumi or the land of the, uh, the sacred landscape, holy land. And his point is that in, in, in India, this is, a, this is a strange story of disconnection and even what I'm calling privation or deprivation, because his argument is that you know, while Hindus uh, can lay claim, <clears throat> it is a pitrabhumi, it, it is the punyabhumi of the Hindus, but Hindus have not, so called, according to him, have not really exercised power in it, or it's not really a centralized kind of, you know, it's not quite uh, the, the, the the fatherland is kind of estranged from them. And it's the opposite for uh, the Muslims, which is that it is not, their, their sacred geography is not here, it's in Mecca and, and, and the Hejaz, but but that, of course, it is also the land of their ancestors, i.e. it's their Pitrabhumi. So in a way, there's a kind of way in which both Hindus and Muslims are estranged from a kind of close connection uh, with it, and he wants to resolve it uh, through, I would say, a particular theory of violence, which I point out. Uh, that it's only a kind of uh, a, a kind of a, 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 a violence of, which produces a new subjugation for Muslims and uh, in India that will produce a, a kind of new relationship in which everyone can then live in a closer connection to both their father, particularly creating a new fatherland. Really, to be honest, but with the question of Buddhism and Sikhs, is that there's and even Jains, you know, there's a way in which. Hindutva seeks incorporation. It seeks them as part of the the, the, the great Indic uh, 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 tradition. But these are all minor points for Savarkar in particular. And I think you will, if you look at it closely, even in contemporary India, uh, I think this will come out more over time, that there is a tension in the Hindutva family. Those who are kind of more religiously minded, and those who see this as very much a political, almost a non-religious doctrine. And, uh, you know, our, our uh, listeners should be reminded that Savarkar was an atheist. And, you know, and in that sense for him, this is the Hindutva is not really about the realization of Hinduism. Now, of course, Shashi Dharur and other people, Indian liberals are constantly making the point that Hindu, Hinduism and Hindutva are oppositional. And to some extent, it's absolutely correct because Savarkar is not seeking in some ways, you know, a kind of, you know, it's not like Saudi Arabia. He doesn't want to see a kind of, you know, the la- it, it cannot be given away uh, to priests or to religious uh, figures. Uh, but in fact, the uh, Hinduness is imputed or Hindutva is imputed with a certain kind of political power which rests on a claim of violence and a control of violence and a subjugation of other ways of thinking and being in India. So I think that has to be absolutely uh, clear. And that's why even his own writings are more interested in the idea of fatherland rather than holy land, if I can put it like that, you know. So I think if you were a true Savarkarite, if I don't wish to be too controversial, but the whole debates around temples and, you know, kind of, you know, the assertion of... Even cow protection for that matter, I would say. Yeah, cow protection. Completely, you know, 
these are not things that interest him. And in fact, he thinks that these are obstacles almost. He's saying that actually Hinduism is an obstacle precisely because it is so diverse and it has so many cultic persuasions that actually militates itself against being centralized. And 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 he says, you know, Hindu. I'm not interested in Hinduism. He's openly uh, saying that in the opening pages of his manifesto. So I think it's yeah, it's it's interesting. So, so That's all. the the appropriation of Buddhism as part of an Indic uh, shared heritage is one. Would you extend that argument to say that the appropriation of Ambedkar himself, for that matter, Ambedkarism, for that matter, uh, is also uh, perhaps could be seen as an interesting facet of today's Hindutva as it is being interpreted and put to practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. So on Ambedkar, it's interesting because the book also looks at Ambedkar and Ambedkar will do a kind of complete reversal of uh, what, say, Savarkar is saying. So for Nehru, of course, Ashoka is a, is a symbol of India's unity who can, you know, produce a kind of nonviolent uh, society after complete you know, after founding its his empire, after all, Ashoka is also the greatest emperor who unifies you know the you know the peninsula and northern India for the first time in India's history. And in and so for him, you know, so Nehru takes inspiration from Ashoka as a figure who can unite uh, post a, a period of huge violence. For uh, Savarkar, it's the opposite. He has militated against nationality. Ambedkar is completely different. Ambedkar charts the story of India's caste society after Buddhism is banished out of India. So they're all interested in ancient history and and they use ancient history to kind of project the future. They're not real historians. They're really using the past to kind of create a future of India, to project a future of India. And to that extent, Buddhism for, um, you know, for Buddhism, uh, you know, uh, Ambedkar says that India is in a is in a mortal conflict. It's in a sort of undeclared civil war between Buddhism and Hinduism. That actually uh, India's uh, caste system emerges because the Brahmins prevail, and they they prevail. And once they prevail, they push Buddhism out of it. And his argument is that actually the future for the untouchables of India, the Dalits of India, will only be true. And it will, the new revolution for him, Buddhism, represents the future of revolution in India, can only be had once, in, you know, actually, you know, India goes Buddhist or the untouchables of, of India go Buddhist. And that's also not meaningless in contemporary uh, ideas. I don't, again, you know, just anecdotally, it's very interesting that when Kanshi Ram died, uh, you know, the great BSP leader, the first major leader post-Ambedkar on the Dalits, you know, there's a huge controversy on how to kind of, you know, how to how to kind of, uh, you know, make a sacred passage for his mortal remains of his body. Should it be mated? Should it be Sikh? You know, because he was, of course, uh, Sikh. Or should it go Buddhist? And it's really interesting to me that it took, you know, many days for that conclusion to, to be had. And, and the idea was that, no, it cannot be Buddhist. It cannot be Buddhist, in part, not quite apart from family reasons and the like, but also because uh, that India's Dalits had not quite acquired power. So it would be premature to declare, you know, declare it as Buddhist. So I think it's, it's interesting that in a way, um, Buddhism has animated so much of India's political thinking 
but we haven't really paid attention. And of course, the, for the government of the day to day, it cannot simply deny it. So it can't simply say it doesn't exist. So it it kind of reformulates it in its own light and makes, as it were, these lions aggressive. And then you have, you know, intellectuals closer to the government saying, oh, well, it's close to the original. Well, I mean, it's never about the original. It's never, with Hindutva, it is not, I mean, the more they go back to the past, even with Savarkar, you know, it shows that they don't have a history. So it's more about occupying the future. It's more about determining the present. It has nothing to do with history in terms of its truth, but everything to do with its deployment in the future. So for Ambedkar, uh, Buddhism was uh, was seen for its, uh, he was seeing Buddhism for its emancipatory potential. But on one question, uh, on the idea that, okay, the the caste system or the violence that comes with caste is actually preventing the formation of a new fraternity. On that question, if one were to frame it in that manner, Ambedkar and Savarkar are on the same side. Am I right? Well, I mean, yes and no, in the sense that uh, both are interested, like everyone. I mean, I think the book's title is Fraternity, precisely because most of our historians, even public debate, has overemphasized the question of freedom and liberty. And even today, you know, whether it's the story of blasphemy or whether it is any of the controversies, the commentary is all about freedom of expression, freedom, liberty, and the like. But actually what underlies is the question of fraternity, i.e. how to live with distinct others. And in India's case, it is fraternity which is most important, both in the Hindu-Muslim question, but also more equally importantly, the caste question, i.e. different castes. And Ambedkar is interested in both these questions. And what he argues, which I think is absolutely radical, is to, you know, because he's criticizing both uh, British colonial policy and British understandings of caste, which are very powerful because those are the ones that go into the census and, and the like. But also he is criticizing Indian social reformers and indeed Ambedkar, uh, sorry, Ambedkar is critiquing Gandhi because they think, well, you know, caste is a social institution. At best, it's an economic institution of hierarchy and labor. And, you know, there is hierarchy and labor in all societies. So this is OK. It's bad, but it's it's not it's not that bad. His argument is, no, this is very specific to India. So it's not like race or it's not like class. It's specific to India because it's bounded in violence. And it, and his argument is that precisely he goes back again to the Buddhist, you know, regicide when a Buddhist king is kind of, you know, deposed. In, in, in ancient India by Pushyamitra and, you know, Brahmins come to power and he says, you know, that's, and, and from then on, there is, there's a new way in which violence is kind of organized in India, which makes the king even less than the, less than the Brahmin, you know, the, yeah. so that's really important because, you know, in the West, you know, the king is the ultimate holder of power, sovereign power, or the questions of life and death, who gets to kill and who gets to go to war. And he's saying, well, actually, in in India is the Brahmin who emerges as this kind of immortal uh, holder of power. Uh, Of sovereignty, of sovereign power, a Brahmin who can basically kill but not die. Uh, and, And that's why the king is lower. You know, that's the point. How is it it different from Savarkar's push 
uh, or argument that uh, uh, caste actually impedes the formation of a Hindu nation. Yeah, so they both, I mean, in the sense, of course, they both believe in intercaste marriage and miscegenation, uh, which is, you know, as a way of producing fraternity in India, because Ambedkar's point is that this this separation, there's a, you know, the point about why it does not produce fraternity is because caste order is not only steeped in violence, but it, it kind of privileges separation. We're not allowed to intermix. We're not allowed to have uh, associations and connections between unequals and and the like because of the way caste operates. And therefore, how are you going to produce democracy? Because democracy is, after all, a life of, it's about associated life. It's about joining up. And that's really the question he's trying to address. So at one level, he, you know, you know, of course, um, uh, Savarkar also has the same problem because he's looking for purity in India's past, much like, say, Nazi thinkers were thinking about it. But he never finds purity in India's past. So as a result, he's saying, well, actually, you can produce a new Hindutva uh, body I wouldn't go on to call it race, but you, he can basically saying you can produce a new Hindu society through miscegenation and and through a particular creed of violence. Ambedkar is actually, of course, wants miscegenation, but ultimately wants the end of caste. You know, it's a much more. You know, he's basically saying, well, this, you know, as is, uh, you know, annihilation of caste, but also. You know, towards the end of his life, he's quite sad. Ambedkar is quite despondent and quite angry uh, after the Hindu code bill fails to take off. And he's, of course, loses his political career as the first law minister. Uh, You know, that's when he returns to the Buddhist question. And he says, well, you know, you can't really highlight caste. You just have to exit Hinduism. And I think these are quite different in that sense, uh, propositions. Okay, so now... The question of separation and being togetherness. In Gandhi's case, as you uh, point out in the book, uh, his approach towards Hindu-Muslim relationship and the uh, untouchable caste Hindu-Christian, on both Christians, he actually believed in separation and being together while being separate, right? Yes, that's a great way of putting it. (laughs) (laughs) So, at that level, would you say that Gandhi, who actually was also agrees with the people who believed in uh, the idea that Hindus and Muslims are two nations, though he is not, he's opposing the idea of geographical partition, but by uh, conceptualizing Hindu-Muslim relations in, in the way you have interpreted it, he perhaps implicitly accepts that logic. No, I don't think he believes that Hindus and Muslims are separate nations. In fact, even us, uh, Ambedkar, who is the only figure from the 1940s, including Jinnah, you know, if you look at the founder of Pakistan, I mean, it's who writes the biggest book on Pakistan, on the idea of Pakistan, it's Ambedkar. And it's not, you know, it's, it's shocking that it's not one of the figures from the Muslim League. But uh, to come back to Gandhi, the question is that Gandhi is opposed to both the British imperial way and even would be opposed to the way our Indian nation state has dis- understood the Hindu-Muslim question, which is to say that they understand the question through the law, through the state, right? I mean, in Hind Swaraj, uh, he said, you know, um, you know, Hindus and Muslims fight, you know, uh, uh, prior to the British government, you know, these were not kind of antagonistic 
legal or competitive categories. And they become competitive only because, you know, law produces a kind of competition in, 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 in the way of thinking about it. But Gandhi is, again, non-liberal, doesn't believe in multicultural fix, you know, that like all, or say secularism in the sense that the state should kind of, you know, uh, figure out a way of dealing with religious identities. But his argument is that, yes, one thing is sacred and that is religion. He, you know, he's against conversion, not because he thinks, you know, a religion is better than B. His argument is very simple, that you can never really give up on something that you have been born into. You may take on other religions. And after all, you know, you know, he used to have, he had a long friendship with um, both fairly Christian-minded figures like C.F. Andrews, but also a large number of Muslim, uh, uh, you know, interlocutors. But his point was that we need to respect really deeply respect each other's religions. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be seeking conversion. We shouldn't be seeking competitive kind of superiority in terms of who is correct on, 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 you know, on. So we have to respect each other's totems, as it were, you know, you know, whether it is the cow for, for Muslims have to respect the cow and Hindus too should kind of respect this, this, this idea that there are certain taboos in Islam. So it's more about having a kind of ethical, uh, ethical and a deep commitment to the idea of religion itself. You may be of X religion and I respect that separation. you fully yeah. for that. Yeah, that is separation. It can, and his argument is precisely that this cannot. This is why he falls out with Ambedkar. This is why he ultimately also falls out with Nehru. His argument is that you cannot do this by the logic of the state, because the state will only, you know, f- produce a kind of discipline or a forced, you know, a forced peace, an armed peace. This has to come from within. It has to come from individuals and communities. And in that sense, you could say uh, Gandhi had, it just was quite radical. But at another level, Gandhi was also, for want of a better word, conservative. Like he didn't. So on this point, he's very close to Tilak, right? Yes, I mean, I think he would be. And I think this is what I try and chart out in the book that actually there is a kind of. uh, Anti statism, as you call it, right? Yes, an anti-state arc, you know, which starts that actually in India, the state has never really uh, acquired a natural life. Uh, And in part, that's because, you know, Tilak is the first figure who, you know, invents a new political subject or how to do politics, how to produce an anti-colonial politics, uh, because the state is actually too powerful. The failure of the Swadeshi movement in 1905-08, which is India's first mass moment of politics, it's an absolute abject failure, despite it being widespread. And figures from that era, whether it's Aurobindo, whether it is Tagore, you know, they all go into seclusion. Some of them, most of them give up on politics. I mean, it's famously in Aurobindo's case. But Tilak actually uses that time because he's quite old by that time and he's had a 20, 30 year career behind him uh, before that. And he's put in prison, the most famous sedition trial in Indian history. And he's taken to Rangoon and he's like, he actually produces a new ground zero of Indian politics at that point, whereby he says, you know, there's a kind of fundamental 
error uh, or departure that we need to seek from the West. The, the role of state as a custodian of uh, sovereignty or people's will. On this question, we see uh, Ambedkar and Patel and Nehru and all on one side, which is pretty much a departure from what Gandhi or Tilak would have imagined. Am I right? Yes. So, yes. Today, when we look at uh, Hindutva in operation, is that yet another way in which uh, Ambedkarism of uh, the state-driven modernity is being appropriated by the Hindutva project? Very interesting question. So very quickly that there is a strong element in India's politics which is against the state and it has to be fashioned. It is fashioned initially by Tilak and Gandhi kind of in a way totally uh, takes it to a whole other level. But he you know, he takes away the question of violence from it. And very simply put, the departure from the West is that, you know, we think of the state as the monopoly holder of violence, the correct prosecutor of violence, is the author of violence, because yes, they can prosecute wars, etc., etc. You know, Tilak says, well, no, actually, and Gandhi also agrees that violence is not something which is happening out there by the state. It is an individual capacity, you and I, kill, you and I live and die. These are individual human capacities. Anyhow, they chart this, you know, they, they take this politics in one direction. And you're absolutely right that Ambedkar will return this question to more, more towards the state, also Patel, particularly after partition. But uh, this tension you see in, in India uh, constantly. Uh, where does so even today you might say that uh, you know there are lynch mobs there are there are ways in which even from the broad family of Hindutva violence is you know in the society in in bodies which are not governable by the state or they are not coming into the purview of the state and that tension remains in India. And whether it takes violent forms or non-violent. So on the question, I mean, in good that you refer, mentioned uh, lynch mobs. So the mobs are claiming to be the more legitimate custodian of uh, sovereignty and hence violence. Uh, and they think that the state has, uh, it, it shouldn't be like resting with the state. That is the logic of partition violence, as you put, right? It was the Brit British saw it as nothing less than revolution. And now when... Uh, Globally, in all democracies, the attempt to distinguish between a mob and the people is actually happening. So how is there a way in which we can sort of distinguish that this is what a legitimate uh, conception of the people is, while uh, that other one is, uh, is, is mobocracy or the rule of the mob? Yeah. I think this is, again, tough question. And I, I can, as a historian, I mean, I go back to the moment of the partition violence uh, to look at this problem because, of course, the people, the so-called people as a category are the darling of democracy. I mean, you know, the, you know, democracy is the rule of the people. And we always kind of romanticize this as people power and it's amazing and it's great. And of course it is. But on the other side of this is that the people are not only cannot only just be seen as romanticized, pliable figures of national projects or democracy. They also are, It's also a dangerous category, a category driven with danger. And what do I mean by this? So we have, as it were, partition violence, you know, a million people are killed. 
And what is this violence, which is till date not prosecuted a single person? No one has been hanged. No one has been taken to prison. And everyone says, you know, they're a victim. Their families were victimized and the like. And this is a kind of guilt-free violence precisely because it was done by the crowd. It was done, of course, by people who were known, neighbors becoming enemies overnight. But it was it was anonymous it, it, because the crowd is a kind. It creates a kind of anonymity, anonymity in when it it's, un, it's unlike a murder, you know, where there is a person. There's a you can see who might be responsible, and in that sense, I think partition violence is very. The structure of that violence has really been uh, key to subsequent forms of violence in India. Uh, so you. Yeah, so that's why you don't get any prosecutions. You know, we've had many, many pogroms. And, you know, at tops, you will have some of the leaders being identified. And maybe some of the police force, you know, if you look at the Sri Krishna uh, report, you know, you will have a few people uh, identified. But large numbers of people remain unidentified. So you, without saying it in so many words, your argument in this book actually takes, takes apart this whole notion that, India's national movement or the formation of the republic was a non-violent enterprise. Am I right? Yes. Yes. I mean, I think that is its 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 point is that look, the formation of a modern state and republic, it's a big big achievement. It is a, it's the first country to be decolonized after America, so after two hundred plus years. So it's not nothing, but it's not no state. It's basic politics. No state can be formed without the question of violence because this modern state is ultimately concerned with producing order and control. But as you violence. say, it is at the border that violence is confined to in the formation of a state. But here yes. it actually gets into the society, right? Absolutely. So the difference is precisely this, that the modern state in the West, post its religious wars, pushed violence to the borders, armed, you know, armed men, you know, our borders are armed, where, you know, you have violence conducted in uniforms. The problem in India is that it is inside, you know, it is, oh, whether it is in caste, whether it is Hindu-Muslim relations, it is intimate. So in the West, you know, the idea of the foreigner, the refugee, you know, that always produces enmity. In India, it's always the known, the intimate, the brother, the, you know, it's, it's, it's the known, the intimate that produces enmity. And, so violence is central and very intimate in nature. So when uh, some of these thinkers, including Patel, is conceding to the to the inevitability of partition and hoping that partition would be the end of strife, now seventy five years later, we still are living in strife and with violence. So some people argue that uh, there is an unfinished agenda of partition. If the partition had partition been complete, we would have been in a better place. Would that be? Uh, I, I, I don't know what a complete a partition would mean, but I do think that I don't understand that. But I do think that the agenda, the the foundations of India's politics were laid down in in the from 1910s onwards, which is why my book looks at that period. That's the kind of, it's a foundational period. We don't have to go back to the medieval era. We don't have to go back to even the Buddhist era, you know, or the Hindu era. What happens in the last, in the first 70, 80 years of, 50, 70 years of India's politics is foundational. And that's the prison in a way we are living in. 
So it's not that it's it's it, the agenda is is finished, and, and it's also true that Hindu nationalism and Hindutva is also produced in in that period, nineteen. So this is the also a struggle inside India because Hindu nationalism and Hindutva did not have a public life till about the late eighties. It's really with the Babri Masjid. Uh, Ramjan Mabhumi issue that Hindu nationalism becomes a, a, a public political action, force yeah, from thought to action. So that's why it's part partly. This is not simply about partition. It is also about the long secret underground history of Hindu nationalism, which you know only acquires public life in the last twenty thirty years. Okay, so before we conclude, I have one more question, uh, if I may. So the discussion uh, about indian sovereignty and violence are both actually the main uh, the, the 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 framing of those discussions have primarily been on around the hindu muslim binary and the caste hindus versus uh, untouchables binary that those are the two binaries that actually drive a lot of this discussion and geographically speaking that is more confined to what uh, i would term as a hindu heartland uh, yes uh, so the other questions particularly the question about uh, the, the Dravidian land and uh, yes. so how relevant were they in the uh, formation or do you think that also I will quickly add one more question into that thing. The question of uh, Shudras get relegated mm-hmm. to a lesser space in this uh, discussion even within the heartland? Yes. Well, I mean, A, uh, hands up, I really ought to have done something with Periyar uh, in the book and and you're absolutely right. And partly this is because, in a way, the anti-caste, anti-Brahminical movement is much earlier in, 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 in southern India. And and also, the, the even even if you may have communism in Kerala, EMS and Namujipad and all also had fairly big caste problems, you know. And, and we never, you know, and even till date, I mean, you, you know, you don't see the communists handling the caste question at all, you know, and they deny it, they're in denial of it. But, um, but, but, but by the time you have independence, there is a fair degree of a kind of autonomy and power to lower caste groups in southern India. And which is, you know, in a way, you're absolutely right. This is a domination, dominant story coming from the North and Western India and even Bengal. I would put Bengal in this. Yeah. But it doesn't quite, the same trajectory doesn't quite, it doesn't quite work in the same way for Southern India. Though what is happening in Southern India is also the, is the same story, ultimately. OBC versus Shudra versus Dalit. You know, these are the new formations. These are the new political elites. And and you have the old elites somehow, you know, still holding on to power, but the newer elites are coming from 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 this. And you know, I I, I agree that the Shudra question is uh, has been relegated, but I do think that some of that politics is going to become more important in the coming years because it's my contention that the so-called Mandal era of Indian politics is coming to an end. Uh, you know. Uh, and particularly in in the north, you know, SP and you know all, all, all of the rest, they seem to be they're at a point of saturation. Uh, they will exist, but they're at a point of saturation. And the BJP has done incredibly well in incorporating the OBC question and even the Dalit question to some degree. And that's why I think what you pose is important, but uh, 
it will become more important politically in the coming years. Thank you, Shruti, for joining us. And it was a, such a fascinating discussion. And the book is even more so. I would invite all our listeners to actually get uh, uh, to this book, Violent Fraternity, Indian Political Thought in the Global Age. Thank you, Shruti, again for joining us. No, thank you so much, sir. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. No, thank you so much, sir. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 